I'll have a little later in this chapter, James will write, do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. And so we pray that you would help us this morning not to be self-deceivers. By your spirit be at work in us, please. That we might not just have a better idea of what these verses mean, but as you help us to live them out. In Jesus' name, Amen. Amen. If I can um, put it this way, the uh, the problem for me with these verses is that one in verse two that we focused in on with the kids' slot. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Is he serious? I mean, there's a word for people like this, isn't there, James? James, don't you know what the last couple of years have been like for us? James, don't you know what we're going through, what I'm going through at the moment, James? Uh, maybe you're here as the guest of the Langlands and you're already looking for an exit. Thinking these people are crazy, or maybe you're a week by week regular and you are as well. What is he talking about? How does one do that? Not so that it's just nice on paper, but it's actually reality, it's lived out. Many of us are British. And we can just about keep calm, carry on, stiff upper lip, dig deep, stick on the smile, and yeah, not so bad, thanks, how are you? Quick deflection, don't really want to let you know who I really am, but, but consider it pure joy. Is he serious? Before we get there, a bit of background. Um, this letter was, unsurprisingly enough, written by a man called James. And we know that he was one of the earthly brothers of Jesus, and that would be a great opportunity, wouldn't it? A great bit of a name drop, sort of first century Christian kudos, bit of a flex. But he doesn't go there. Do you see how he see how he describes himself in verse one as a servant, a servant of his older brother Jesus. It's as if his identity had been rewritten, remolded. It's not about Jesus. So it's not about James. It's about Jesus now. He's a biological brother, but a spiritual servant of Jesus. So it was from him. Who was it to? Would well, you see the 12 tribes scattered among the nations? And the, the 12 tribes is a way in which Old Testament believers would. Um, explain themselves, describe themselves, and the Jews of the time dispersed through the Roman world, thought of themselves as scattered, so it's likely that this was a letter predominantly to Jewish background Christians, folk who have trusted in Jesus, which would fit in what we know of James, actually, because we know from Acts he was the, uh, the leader of the mostly Jewish church in Jerusalem, Acts 15 and elsewhere. So that's who it's from, that's who it's to, and then it's just straight in there. Greetings, thanks James, straight in there, no waggling over the tea or formalities or beating around the bush. Consider it pure joy, bang. It's worth saying he's not some sort of unhinged eternal optimist. He knows that there are trials, many trials, as he puts it, it's not as if he's ignoring them. He knows that the Bible would say we live in a world that is not meant to be. It's not the world that, not the world as God created it, but rather the world as sin spoiled it. Christian faith ought not to be surprised about the daily reality of pain. Well, from, from chapter 3 of Genesis through to 
chapter 20 of Revelation, this bit in the middle is always going to be hard. It's always going to be painful. The languages know that, and you and I know that. That's the reality of the world, isn't it? God has done something about it. Jesus died on the cross on the Friday and rose again on the Sunday. Sin has been atoned for, but for now he's back with the Father, and one day he will return. And the Bible says when he returns, then it will be as it's meant to be, and yet even more glorious. Even better than at the start. But for now we're waiting. And because we turn our back on God, and everything goes out of kilter, our relationships with him, and with each other, and with the world, and even with ourselves, and so come pain, and trials of many kinds. Injustice, poverty, sickness, illness, conflict, death, grief. It's worth just going there and saying, we need to be honest about that. Because there is not a person in this room this morning, whether in here or in the overflow or online or listening in later on a podcast or something, who won't know the reality of those trials. It's all of us. Suffering is universal. Whether you're a Christian or agnostic or atheist or something else, or you're just confused and not quite sure where you stand, you are not alone. And they might put on a smile and say, yeah, fine, thanks, how are you? But everyone's in the same boat. Everyone will meet. That person sat next to you now. Person on the bus, your colleague. Friend in the office, friend in the staff room, you're a nightmare of a boss. Everyone. Trials of many kinds. These verses apply to you, and to me, and to us. Which makes them very relevant, very important. Worth listening to. For the Christian, at least, we are to consider these trials pure joy. I've got a verse that I've found that's really hard to prepare. Especially with the last couple of years, he says vaguely. Especially with stuff here in the building, even. All kinds of things. So, how do we do it, James? Just firstly, notice the word consider. I think that means the process, for at least getting to the kind of place where we'd like to be in verse 2, the process begins up here. It begins with our mindset our way of thinking. It's about changing our perspective. But that is step one in the process to make um, days of trial, times of joy. Consider. So first point, consider that they can make us mature. Quickly there will be some notes on the screen for you. In my parents' um, greenhouse, big greenhouse, if you slide the door open and you go in at the right time of year, the smell of the ripe vine-grown tomatoes is extraordinary. Do you know that, just that fresh tomato smell? And even then the taste of them, assuming there are no slugs and stuff, the taste of them is incredible. But imagine if you'd come two or three or four months before, and there would have been nothing of the sort. A few little green sprouts in the ground, Maybe some fertilizer, maybe a bit of manure. Actually, the smell of the greenhouse might have been quite different. And the thing about life is it's ultimately not about my comfort. 
but actually it's about my conformity to Jesus. It's maturity, it's fruitfulness, it's Christ-likeness. Life is more than just about three score years and ten or a few more of as little discomfort as possible. The trouble is when we think about life, we think about comfort. Comfort is what Instagram tells us. Comfort is what is shouted to us from every angle most of the time, and so pain is to be evaded at all costs, trials are to be sidestepped, hard steps are to be hardships to be avoided. And yet, as we thought with the kids, it is so often through the trials that he grows us. Trials are the greenhouse in which he matures you and me. Again, that's what you need to say. It's much harder to do, isn't it? It's much harder to live in the midst of this. But brothers and sisters, do not be afraid of the trials of life. See how it works with James. Let me read again verse 2. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work, so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. So we said with the kids, it's, faith is, is like any kind of muscle, and you put strain on a muscle and it will grow. And you go to the gym and you can literally get bigger because you're putting strain on muscles and muscles are growing. And so trials put faith to the test and faith grows. It produces perseverance. Well, I'm not the gym person, I'm the running person, and I'm not the ultramarathon person, but imagine you were the ultramarathon person. And you begrudgingly start off with the catch to 5k. You've got your headphones in, you've got your trainers on. Some of you have done it. And then slowly but surely you reach 5k and you think, I'm going to go for a 10k. I'm going to double it. And bit by bit, you get better. You're trusting the person on the app who's telling you to run this and walk that. And then you do a big week, weekly long run on a Saturday, lots of little short ones through the week to try and get you faster, and bit by bit, more and more, the stamina grows, and then, and then race day approaches. And you're not going to win any records. But you think a year ago, I could barely walk to a shop without puffing. Well, so James says, look at the spiritual stamina. We keep going and we keep growing. And we do that and we grow closer to him. Closer to the, the person we were meant to be. Closer to the likeness of Christ that we were meant to be. It's, it's not about being comfortable. It's about being conformed to the image of Jesus. We need to be careful. That doesn't necessarily mean, of course, that we don't seek to alleviate pains and trials from our lives. Don't use this passage. Don't blame me for not going to a GP. That's not what it's about. Jesus walked around the earth and he brought healing and wholeness and peace and restoration. But I think it means in the midst of this, then we can consider, we can change our mindset to understand what he might be doing in us through it. He's not saying that we'll automatically do that. No, 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 it's not as simple as that. But rather that we have to consider trials in that way. And I know this is live. This is live for some of you. 
this is the week by week, day by day, hour by hour, minute by minute challenge. And you think, I'm not, I'm not sure I can consider it pure joy. Maybe our first step then is considering whether you might consider it pure joy. You might not be in the place where you say, yes, I can do that, but could you be in the place where you say, I'd like to be able to do that? Friends, you can trust him. You can trust him. He is with you. He is at work in you. He is changing you, even when it's hard. And when you understand that, it doesn't take away the pain, as if it could. But it might help us to keep going. It might be that this genuinely is a season of trial for you, and in the Lord's kindness, He's brought you here today, and we're doing James, and there we go. Maybe it's school, maybe it's studies, maybe it's work, family, generally life, and there's that little voice there that sometimes you hear it, and it says, "See, you know, He has forgotten. He doesn't care. He's not good. You can't trust Him." And so I think then what James does is he helps us at that point to, and he moves us on to ask to, so that we might ask God to see things his way. He wants us secondly then to ask for wisdom, verse 5 to 8. We read on again, not lacking anything. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt, because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. See, the problem is, in the midst of the trial, as you will know and as I know at times, when it all feels really dark, they can be so all-consuming and so absorbing and so debilitating that it's hard to have any kind of perspective that the Lord might be at work at that moment. Isn't it so hard? They loom and they're just there and you think, I don't know what this is for. And so I think we need his help to see things the way that he sees things. I think that's the kind of wisdom going on here. It's not that James is suddenly talking about sort of suffering and trials and hardships. And now we're talking about wisdom, but they're linked. That's the context. It's, it's to see the situation as God sees the situation. It's a specific kind of wisdom that we're thinking about. And we might be hurting, or confused, or anxious, or afraid, and God says, ask me. Ask me, and I'll help you. I'll help you to see what's going on. I'm not calling on you to deal with it on your own. I'm asking you to, to ask me for the wisdom that you need, and I'll provide that wisdom for you. Suffering them does teach us a lot about ourselves. And so, of course, our tendency in a world of keep calm and carry on is to kind of look inside for resources, to, to get sort of, well, here's my to-do list, here are my plans, here's my problem solving, here's how I'm going to deal with the situation and then we'll be okay. And there may well be a place for those things. But the first step, it seems to me, from these verses is not to look inside, but it's to look to him and say, Lord, give me wisdom that I might see things as you see things that I might have your perspective on this situation. But when we ask him for that wisdom, 
Did you see it? We're not to be those who doubt. And I think when he talks about doubt, verse 6, it's not so much the intellectual problem of doubt. It's not that, well, I'm not sure God is there to provide, or God is willing to provide, or able to provide. I don't think it's so much the intellectual problem, although there is some of that, it's more the trusting problem. That's the conclusion in verse 8, when he talks about being double-minded. So the image that James paints to us, did you see it? Verse um, 6, is a little fishing boat in the middle of the ocean. There they are, minding their own business, looking for fish, blown back and forth, winds from every side, buffeting them around, one way or another, back and forth, to and fro. And so the one who is doubting, the one who is blown around by different ideas, different winds of teaching, it's the, no, 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 this is what you need to make life work. This is what it's all about. This is what you should be doing. This is how you can deal with that situation. This is how you can make life better. And yet James says, no, no, no. We're not to be double-minded. We're not to be those who doubt. We're to trust him. Different ideas and winds of teaching that just surround us day by day. You see it in your internet history because your internet history shows you your daydreams. You think, I need a change in career. That's what I need. And so there you are on LinkedIn and job websites for half the week. No, no, you need, you need to move to the country with the rest of the world. Bigger house, big garden, fewer people, less likely to catch anything. And so there you are on right move, clicking through houses. Emails set up telling you what's come up. No, no, you need the next gadget. That's what you need. And there you are scrolling on Amazon Prime, not because you want anything, but you think, well, maybe, maybe I should want something. What does Amazon think I don't want? No, no, what you need, you need better friends. You need to get some new friends. So there you are lurking on Facebook or social media. I'd like to be part of that group. They look like they're having a lot of fun. Far more fun than me. And we're wafted about by different ideas, different voices, buffeted this way and that, like a little boat in the middle of the ocean. Double minded. Not quite sure what we need. Not quite sure who we can trust. The, um, the double minded word is a word for, for someone stuck in two camps, trying to keep a foot in both camps, trying to sit on the fence about Jesus. Maybe they're on a Sunday, maybe interested, maybe kind of chewing things over, but there are other voices, so tempting, so persuasive, trying to keep options open, not quite sure whether it's worth jumping in with Jesus or not, unable to commit. That's the kind of idea of double-mindedness. Now, I went to school in Oxford, and um, unlike some of you in this room or in the overflow rooms, I never rowed. Um, lots of rivers around the place. My school was a rowing school. I never rowed. I never rowed once, actually. Because um, we had a house competition each year. And one year, my house was short. My house were locked a few rows, it turns out. And it, I was told, you don't really need experience. We just need, we just need a body in a boat to make up the numbers. And there I was. Um, black rugby shorts, red vest, trying to get into this small boat thing that I'd never seen before. And the hardest thing for me on that day, I can tell you, was trying to get into the boat. And there I was. Foot on the bank, foot in the boat, 
and you can see what's coming. It's a true story. I started to, it started to move. I didn't know what to do. Do you jump back onto the bank or into the boat and go for it? You just stand there, paralyzed, panicking, neither one way nor the other. So this double-minded thing comes up again and again and again in James. Where are you going to stand? You're not quite decided. You want to have your cake and eat your cake. You're stuck on the fence, not willing to put your all in with Jesus. We'll see in weeks to come, he's writing to a people, they say they love God, but they've got a real thing for money and riches as well. They say they love God, but they've got this real thing for dreams and projects and plans and successes and achievements, and they're doing what they want to do on their timeline and their tasks, and they're full of pride and self-sufficiency and the voices and the ideas buffeting us this way and that. You need a better job, you need the house in the country, you need the next gadget, you need better friends. And the problem is when we are double-minded. It's a rubbish place to be because it is so hard to rejoice in God. Because we're not quite sure whether we really trust him. Whether he can provide. We're caught with one foot on the bank and one foot in the boat, and it just doesn't work. Modern Road, if I can encourage you, throw your lot in with God. Commit to being single-minded. Even in the midst of trials, even when it feels hard to trust Him, trust Him. And you might feel the allure of the new job and you're on LinkedIn and the house in the country so you're on right move and the next gadget so you're on Amazon Prime and a new set of friends for you're lurking on Facebook but throw your lot in with him. Trust him. He can provide. He is good. You can trust him. And where does that leave us? Our last couple of verses, verse 9 to 11. Treasure Jesus above all else. James really hammers at home at the end. And again, we get some more glimpses of things to come in later weeks. Believers in humble circumstances ought to take pride in their high position, but the rich should take pride in their humiliation, since they will pass away like a wildflower, for the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant. Its blossom falls and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich will fade away even while they go about their business. I take it part of the wisdom that we ask for the Lord for is that we might see things as he sees things. And a particular challenge for us for that is how we see money and wealth and riches and stuff because it is so easy to trust in those things. They seem so trustworthy and yet the kingdom of God is an upside down kingdom of topsy-turvy values. And the world says, you see the world says, you are one of the least, you are in humble circumstances, you are discarded and overlooked, and yet actually, you poor Christian, you have the only treasure worth having. You have Jesus. You have the high position, you have what matters. You might have a bank balance with nothing else, but you have the one treasure. Because that's why we can meet such extraordinary content, humble, generous Christians at times, you know, who have so little in worldly terms. But it's because they know that what they have is the thing that matters. They have the one treasure. It's not that they're kidding themselves. 
Though they've been given wisdom from God, and they are not double-minded. The flip side is, the world says you're important. You have the seven-figure salary. You have the huge house on the Woodstock Road. You have an enormous car or two. But you can take pride in your humiliation. Humiliation. There's ten. Oh, because this rich Christian is that they can't buy their way into heaven. They can't rely on their riches. It will get them nowhere. And so they've lowered themselves to receive the free gift of grace. They might have a bank full of cash. They might have savings coming out of their ears, but they've got empty hands. They come to the Lord and ask for forgiveness. Their money will get them nowhere. Or maybe it's not the seven-figure salary, huge house on the Woodstock Road, a couple of huge cars. Maybe it's us on this side of Oxford. Because in the global perspective, we are hugely wealthy. We are extremely rich. Even with energy prices rocketing and council tax ludicrous. But actually, in a world of culture, to remember that the rich are like flowers who blossom, whose blossom falls and the beauty is destroyed, verse 11, is a really good thing to remember. And that Jesus is not just one of the treasures that we should run after, but the only treasure that matters is vital. It changes everything. But how do we do with the hardships of life, the trials of many kinds, verse 2? Three things for us this morning. We consider, and we ask, and we treasure. If you want to see a T, there we go. Consider, ask, treasure. We consider, we consider that the Lord might use those things to mature us, that we are in the greenhouse, that even when it hurts, even when it's dark, that he's growing us, that it's not about comfort, it's about conformity to Jesus. That's what really matters. So we consider, we ask, we ask him for wisdom, that we would not be double-minded, but rather trust him to see things as he does, that we might see the world as he sees the world, that he might, we might see our situation as he sees our situation. Indeed, that he might, we, might see, we might see how he sees us, Consider asking and treasure, that we might treasure Jesus above all else. And in the rich West, that is wonderful. And if we get those things, if we consider and we ask and we treasure, then maybe we might consider our trials pure joy, or, or at least maybe we might be a bit closer. Let's pray. Father Heaven, we, we confess we find these verses hard. And so we pray that you would help us. Help us to consider, to know that in the midst of trials and hardships, you're at work maturing us, conforming us into the likeness of Jesus, pulling us away from our love of God. Help us to be those who ask, to ask you for wisdom that we might see, see things as you see things. And that we would not be double-minded as we ask, but rather 
jump in with you, trust you. And help us to be those who treasure Jesus above all else. We confess how easily we can get sucked into treasuring other things. How much we can treasure the gifts rather than the one who's given them. And we thank you that Jesus is so amazing. Thank you that in him we see what it means to go the way of the cross. Help us to trust him.